Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. That he was establishing before them that he was the promised royal Messiah. I imagine that if you were appointed as king, you'd be fairly keen to hang on to your position. You certainly wouldn't be ready to hand over the title willy-nilly. But what if there was one who comes along more deserving of the title? Ouch. That was the situation at the time Herod the Great was ruler. He was told of one who was born to be king. Needless to say, he was more than a little put out. Tonight on Finding Truth Matters, Dr. Corbett is continuing in the series on the Lordship of Christ. Let's join him now for Born a King. As we prepare our hearts for the Advent season, we once again return to those opening chapters of the Gospels, particularly the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where the story is told once again of how Christ came to be born. We read in Matthew chapter 2 and verses 2 to 3, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, we, we can read a verse like that, and we've probably heard that many times for those of us who've done a few trips around the sun. You will have heard that if you've been in church, especially on Christmas Day or leading up to Christmas, many times, perhaps hundreds of times. But how many of us realize the background to what's happening here when it declares that there was a king, but then they came looking for a king who wasn't that king. There is a political, geopolitical backdrop to the Christmas story that is not presented in any Christmas card or any Christmas carol, really, of the incredible moment that's just happened. In order to understand this, I want to pray. I want to ask God to help us. And I want particularly God to help me now as I try and try my best and attempt to convey to you the gravity of what we generally call the Christmas story. But there is something so deeply profound embedded in this that I just want to try to unpack it now for you so that we can see it. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we settle our hearts in the busyness of this season in particular to be able to stop and to pause and to breathe and reflect on you and your word and give us eyes to see give us ears to hear father at this time when as some theologians have described this as the most seismic event in human history and yet for us it sometimes gets lost in the the rush and the busyness of shopping and present wrapping and Christmas caroling and all the fun things that are so enjoyable, but yet, Lord, can sometimes obscure us from recognizing, realizing, and seeing what is actually in your word. Now, Lord, help me to unpack your word as I attempt to make this clearer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is a wonderful time. It's a really beautiful time, but there's, a, there's kind of a sorrow of late that has come into my heart over this season, particularly as a pastor, as a preacher. This will be my 28th 
Christmas service at our church here in Lagana. And each year there are people who are annual visitors and they are so welcome. We, I see some people uh, who come Christmas Day to our Christmas service and it's the only time I'll see them through the whole year. And they come and they hear that message, the message of the birth of the Saviour. They hear the nativity scene. They hear about the shepherds. They hear about the wise men, also known as the Magi, the, or pronounced sometimes the, the Magi. If you're in America, they tend to emphasize those vowels. But there is something about this story that is so profound. And I'm going to use a word that might shock you relevant relevant for where we're at now but in order to appreciate what i'm trying to say let me just unpack what we just read this was matthew chapter 2 verse 2 where it says that after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea that's that's significant we'll see why in a moment in the days of king herod that's significant because it says the king Herod the king, behold, wise men, the Greek word is magi, M-A-G-I, magi, that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now that's significant. I want to try to unpack that very quickly. And their question to King Herod was this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That is deeply significant. For we saw his star, that significant, when it rose and have come to worship him. And that's significant. There is so much in this verse that I hope to attempt to unpack now. And I've, I've called this in our series, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I've called this, he was born a king. You see, as I, I hope to show you, there, there is a, a, a stark contrast presented in, in just this verse where it says there was a king, but they came looking for another king. So the king who actually reigned over Judea at, at that time when Jesus was born was known and will be, go down in history known as Herod the Great. Now this Herod, he had no legitimate claim to the throne of Israel. He wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't even a Hebrew or an Israelite. He was actually Edomian uh, of Nabataean. If you know where Petra is, uh, you'll know this: the Nabataeans and the Edomians are, are south of the area of Judea. And so it was only because during the Roman occupation where this Herod supported the Romans that he was rewarded for his loyalty by the Roman Senate and he was made king of Judea. And having been made king of Judea, despite his numerous, almost frantic attempts to curry favor with the, with the inhabitants of Palestine, the Jews, and, and this included several major public works programs, and some of them ran into the, the, almost the beginning of the, the time of Christ's ministry, especially the rebuilding of the temple or the the continuation of the rebuilding of the temple. Yet despite all that, this king, King Herod, was despised. He was despised by the Jewish people because he was not legitimate. He was a puppet king of the Roman Empire. And when Herod heard what these three 
wise men said these well we say three wise men these wise men said when they came into jerusalem and and we read that further on that when they did enter in the the whole city was in a stir they they were deeply moved by the arrival of these men and so this was not just three guys on camels or some guys on camels as many of the christmas carols would present it there would have been a large retinue that came with them and so this was a big deal at that time and their question to herod where is he who was born the king of the jews led herod to seek out his chief priests and scribes and he asked them in, in, in verse 4, we read, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, that is the promised one, was to be born. Now what they told him, if he wasn't, if he wasn't already troubled by the announcement that the king of the Jews, the prophesied king of the Jews, had now been born, the sign that they were to look for was now clearly evident astrologically, that is, in the, in the night sky. He was troubled by what the scribes and the chief priests now told him because what they told him was that he was to be born in Bethlehem because that was the town, the hometown of Israel's greatest king, King David, Bethlehem. Lechem means house of food or house of bread in particular. So when Jesus later on says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven, there is a connection there. This prophesied king was to be a direct descendant of David. We read that in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 23, where the prophet declared, and I will set up over them, that is over Israel, one shepherd my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And so this promised king would be of the line of David. Obviously, he would be from David. This is why the prophet could say, my servant David would feed them, but obviously his descendant. And so this coming king would not be like the surrounding kings who were largely despots. They didn't consider people at all, but this king was prophesied as being a shepherd king. We read the prophet Isaiah, who described the, the coming kingdom of this descendant of David as lasting, and I quote, forevermore. He, he wrote this in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see what the chief priests would have told King Herod would have encompassed all of these prophetic utterances about the coming Messiah, the Christ, 
Christ means the anointed one, the promised one. When Daniel the prophet foresaw the coming of this royal Messiah as one who would establish his kingdom, and it would be in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, an everlasting kingdom. In King David's royal psalm, he prophetically describes the coming one, his descendant, the royal Messiah, who would be contrasted with mere earthly appointed kings and of note, particularly King Herod the Great. King Herod was a despot. He was cruel. He was vindictive. He ordered the execution of people. He ordered the execution of family members. This man was a tyrant. And yet the prophesied shepherd Messiah, the royal shepherd Messiah, would be contrasted with these people. He wouldn't oppress people. He would be one who would defend the rights of the poor and the oppressed. So David prophetically in Psalm 72 verses 2 to 4, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. This is poetic language to describe the reign of the coming Messiah. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. This king was going to be different than any other king who had been before them, yet be in the line of David. He would be another and the ultimate shepherd king who cared for people, healed their sick, alleviated poverty, defended the defenceless, and dealt severely with the wickedness of oppressors. In Matthew's Gospel, the opening Gospel of the four Gospels, we read that Matthew is describing, without saying it, but he is describing the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, as the prophesied Lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 9, we have uh, Jacob, calling his sons, his 12 sons to him. And when he comes to Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He he stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And later on, we read that the scepter would never depart from Judah, the lion of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the closing book of the Bible describes Jesus as it says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that is the descendant of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Of course, the scroll and the seven seals were the judgment of God. And he was able to open that scroll because he had with... He had withstood and passed the judgment of God. So we see that prophecy by Jacob that the king would arise out of the tribe of Judah and be like a lion. Ezekiel the prophet, when he described the guardians of God's very presence as being four-faced heavenly beings who reflected the one they served, each had a face of a man. And of course, 
we see the face of a man in Christ. He was the son of man, one of his most often used divine titles. These creatures had the face of a lion. Of course, Christ, the lion. Lions represent the kingliness of God. These creatures had the face of an ox, the worker, the one represented in the Gospel of Mark, as we'll see in a moment. The one, an ox, often used as a sacrifice for sins. And an eagle, the Gospel of John, presents Christ as the divine Son of God, represented and representing the face of the eagle in these creatures whom Christ was being reflected in them. And each of these four faces of Christ are reflected in the four Gospels. But it's Matthew's Gospel that particularly, thematically, presents Jesus as the king. And we see the the use of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God used some 80 times in the Gospel of, of Matthew. The kingship of Christ is borne out all the way through Matthew's Gospel by this repeated and frequent use of the term the kingdom. It's borne out in his preaching and in his teaching. In Matthew chapter 13, Matthew records Jesus telling parables one after another about his kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus declares that his kingdom, what it would be like and how it would be culminated. Significantly, Jesus commences this address in Matthew 25, just before he goes to the cross. In the next chapter, it begins to talk about what we generally call the passion of the Christ. But as he begins to unpack this last story of the kingdom, he initially describes himself as the son, the son of man, and then immediately refers to himself as the king. This is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne, his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who were blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, immediately having identified himself as the Son of Man, he then identifies himself as the King. So it was long believed by the Jews that this King would be of the line of David. This is what the prophets had foretold. But also it was believed that because he would be from the royal line of David, that he too would have some of the same powers, spiritual powers, that King David had. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23, that when David was brought into the service of King Saul, that he would play his, his musical instrument. And it says, whenever... The harmful spirit from God was upon Saul. David took the lyre, a kind of a harp, and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. 
So it was believed that King David and his son King Solomon could cast out demons. They were given a special grace by God to cast out demons. And it was believed that when the Messiah came, he would have the same grace. He would have the same spiritual power. So when Jesus indeed did begin casting out demons, it was in the minds of the people that he was establishing before them that he was the promised royal Messiah, the son of David. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And the answer, of course, is yes. So the extent of Christ's kingdom was believed by his original Jewish audience to be the boundary of Palestine, just the biblical borders, that's it. But Christ was not speaking about his kingdom being comprised of borders. Christ was talking about his kingdom being comprised of people. And these demons were trespassing on his territory when they possessed people. And so as the rightful king in the line of David with the power of God, those within his territory who were trespassing these demonic spirits, the royal right to evict them was executed. Jesus, the royal king, the one born as a king, he didn't become a king. He wasn't born, then became a king. He was a king. He was a born king. He had the right to evict people from his territory. And this is why over and over the gospel writers tell us he delivered people of demons. He expelled demons. The concluding parable that Jesus told was of sheep and goats. And in that parable, he describes his throne where he judges nations, not just a nation, not just the people within a geographic border of Palestine, but all people of all nations. He was declaring that his kingship, his kingdom, him as king, was not bounded by the borders of Palestine. The kingdom of Christ was the whole world, and everyone in it is expected to comply with his wishes because it's his. The world belongs to Christ. He is king of the world and he wishes, he longs for all people from every nation, tribe and tongue to repent and to surrender to him and receive his royal pardon. This is his longing. The kingdom of Christ can only be entered into via a royal pardon. And once you've entered into his kingdom, that kingdom can only be enjoyed when the pardoned pardon those who sin against them. This is so important to understand that the kingdom of God is entered into by being pardoned. And once pardoned, you are given the power to pardon those who sin against you and offend you. Jesus 
made this so clear when he taught his disciples how to pray a kingdom prayer. We know the prayer. We've heard it many times, but hear it differently. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. This is the debt of sin. As we also forgiven, as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, Jesus in that prayer taught his disciples to pray, Father, forgive me as we have now forgiven those who've sinned against us. You see, Jesus went on to explain that that line in the prayer. And he said this, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, for many people it's going to be a shock that they assume God will forgive them. But even on that basis, yeah, you'll be forgiven to the extent that you have forgiven. And the the good news here is that accepting the pardon that God offers comes with a power to pardon those who've hurt us. And as Christ approached the time of his earthly, I'll use this royal term, it's used in a coronation, his earthly ascension to his throne of wood, constructed by Roman soldiers. I love what some of the the church fathers do when they talk about the cross. They talk about the cross being the throne of Christ. From the cross, Christ ruled the world. From the cross, Christ the King conquered the world. And above that cross, there was nailed a sign that said, King of the Jews. He was King, not just of the Jews, Pilate. He was King of the world, King of the universe. But from that royal cross, that royal throne, he exercised his lordship, his kingship reign over the earth. Now that cross was constructed by Roman soldiers and it was eventually to be installed at Calvary, Golgotha, overlooking the once holy city of Jerusalem. When he entered into the city riding on a donkey accompanied by her foal, her colt, Matthew cites the prophet Zechariah when he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew continues to describe Jesus as the rightful king entering into Jerusalem, thus fulfilling the prophets. And once in Jerusalem, Jesus then set about to tell several royal-themed stories foretelling how his father had sent him and how he would be rejected by the proud religious leaders of Jerusalem. Imagine that in the temple precinct. As the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees gather around to hear him tell these stories and how he describes their treatment prophetically of him. These parables included the the parable of the tenants described in Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 to 40. And the story of the king who invited his subjects to celebrate the wedding of his son. And we read about this 
in Matthew chapter 22, verses 2 to 10, where it says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, "Mm, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. It's a poignant story, and I, I, I feel in this moment the deep pathos, that is the deep, sad emotion of Christ as he now enters into Jerusalem knowing what's going to happen and this, is, this moment is poignantly captured by Matthew as he describes Jesus' disgust at the wicked behavior of the chief priests, men appointed by God who were supposed to uphold the law. And Jesus leaves the city precinct and ascends the Mount of Olives where he laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Matthew 23 verse 37. The sad thing, the sad reality we hear in that story that Christ foretold and, and Christ is lamenting over him wanting to gather the people of Jerusalem the leaders of Jerusalem, those who claimed to know God. And there was God in the flesh. And now he laments, I sent to you prophets and you killed them. And now I know what you're going to do to me as well. Christ's kingdom was rejected by those largely who claimed to be his subjects by ancestry. In other words, they they claimed to have a connection with Abraham. But his kingdom, he announced, would be, would be embraced by those who were not physically related to Abraham, but were eager to be pardoned by the king. And we read this in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 to 12, where Christ, you could imagine, almost with a tear in his eye, is saying, those children of Abraham who should have known that they needed to be pardoned, that I was offering them pardon, that it was there, it was available to them. They shook their hands, they shook their clenched fists at me, and they rejected the offer. And now there will be many people, Christ was saying, who were not descendant of Abraham physically, but they would welcome that pardon from the king and they would want to come in to the wedding feast, the great feast, the 
kingdom of Christ. So we see in Matthew chapter 21, verse 40 to 41, when therefore, this is another story that Christ told, another royal themed story we told. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, the scribes and Pharisees who, who are listening to him in the temple precinct, they said he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons in their seasons. And so here we have even the scribes and Pharisees who are now not realizing Jesus is describing them and their rebellion and their wickedness. And they admit, well, those people don't deserve to be in the kingdom. This kingdom should be given to those who long for it. And Jesus is saying, it's not you. It's not you who long for it. You see, prior to Christ's ascension, and again, I'm using more royal language to describe the installation of a king, when the Bible actually describes Christ returning to his father as ascending in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Jesus to Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And just prior to his ascension, he, he makes a royal pronouncement. And that's this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. We've got to feel the magnitude of this, the weight of this. This is enormous. This is what we might call seismic. This is seismic. The risen, sin and death conquering Jesus is not merely a king over a small slither of Mediterranean coastline. No. This Jesus, he's king over the whole earth. This is the point that he is Lord of heaven and earth. So this is what we, we need to understand, that this sin and death conquering Jesus is king of kings. He's Lord of lords, Paul writing to Timothy tells us. And his disciples whom he's talking to at what we call the Great Commission are not merely incidental, irrelevant officers in an insignificant domain somewhere over there. No, they are ambassadors of a king and his kingdom that demands an embassy representation, that demands embassy representation in every city, every town, every village, around the entire globe, around the world, wherever there be people an embassy of Christ and his kingdom, which we call the church, needs to be established. His ambassadors, as the New Testament calls believers, followers of Christ, are now his royal priesthood, Peter writes, who now, under royal edict, summon whosoever to turn to the pardoning king, 
in full surrender. That's Jesus. He's the pardoning king and he can pardon you. You need to seek and to want and to recognize your need of pardon. It requires that you humbly accept his gracious offer of pardon. Stop living in denial that you don't need it. You're not really that bad. When the wise men arrived to the false king of Judea, King Herod, they asked, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And today we can answer that question. We can answer that question very confidently. He is now seated upon his royal throne at the right hand of his almighty father. We read in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And dare I say it, not just to Israel, but to all people who recognize their need for pardon, that he will grant to them also repentance and forgiveness of sins. And if that's you, let me pray for you right now, because that pardon from the king who pardons, the pardoning king is available to you right now. Join with me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open up the hearts of people to recognize that Christ is king he is lord and he is the pardoning king he didn't become a king when he was born he was already the king and so father i pray that for those who are hearing me now that their hearts would be filled with an awareness that they need a second chance maybe a third fourth fifth sixth seventh maybe an umpteenth chance at life again and that can only come from the king who pardons, wipes the slate clean, and gives them a brand new start. And if that's you, I need to tell you, under royal edict authority, you are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away. Will you pray that prayer? God, please pardon me for my sin, my guilt, and my shame. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live for you. You pray a prayer like that, friend. I tell you absolutely, God will hear that prayer. And this could be the first day of the rest of your life. And when your life ends in this life, it will continue on in the true life, the real life, in the real world that you were created for. Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Lordship of Christ Part 8 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, not only the birth of Jesus, but his role as king was prophesied long before it occurred. The events didn't play out the way many anticipated, but king he certainly was and is. More of Finding Truth Matters next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Music